Hello, everybody. I'm Beat Weibel, Chief IP Counsel of Siemens. Actually, I'm now working 30 years in IP in the industry, and you are listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 126 of IP Fridays. Together with my co-host Ken Suzanne, I thank you for tuning in. If you are a new listener, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you are a returning listener, thank you for your loyalty. Today's interview guest is Beat Weibel, Chief IP Counsel and Group Senior Vice President at Siemens, overseeing all IP and especially all patent activities at Siemens. We cover a very broad range of topics ranging from patent quality, patent trolls, the unified patent court and much more. So stay tuned. Before we jump into the interview, I have news for you. The unified patent court will likely start operation in fall this year. Austria has deposited its instruments of ratification of the protocol on provisional application of the UPC agreement. This then triggered the provisional application period, the PAP, and the birth of the unified patent court as an international organization. It is expected that this period will last eight months at least. So the UPC is expected to open doors uh, at the earliest in September and possibly in October or November. The EU General Court upheld findings of partial invalidity of the Moonboot Shape trademark. In 2011, the Italian shoemaker Technica applied to register the 3D mark and it was granted the following year. But now this trademark has been found partially invalid. So Technica will not be able to enforce this shape trademark against competitors in the footwear business easily. On January 1st, France has taken over the presidency of the Council of the European Union and one of the priorities is intellectual property. France wants to push design reform, geographic indications, and of course the unified patent court. Now let's jump into the interview with Beat Weibel. Today's interview guest is Beat Weibel. Beat Weibel is the Chief IP Counsel and Group Senior Vice President at Siemens since 2013. So he is the boss of all IP activities at Siemens worldwide, I guess. And uh, he's also serving as the president of VPP, which is uh, the Association of Intellectual Property Experts in Germany since 2019. And before his activity at Siemens, he was over 20 years, actually. He was in uh, at ABB for also intellectual property uh, for a long time. And he originally received his education from ETH Zurich. Um, in electrical engineering. Um, thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So you are a big shot in the IP uh, world. So I have a lot of topics uh, for you. <laughs> I hope we can cover some of them at least. Um, and one of the topics that uh, is most interesting to you at the moment, and that's uh, that's why we discussed this first, is uh, patent quality. So. Um, patent quality is always an important uh, issue. Some uh, you see that uh, some companies file tons of patents and some of them have good quality and not. And some some companies don't file a lot of patents, but maybe they have uh, higher quality. So why are you so interested in patent quality at the moment? Yeah, first of all, because uh, this patent quality discussion, at least in Germany, has uh, become a public discussion. <laughs> And I personally think that uh, this discussion is going into the wrong direction. And I will tell you in a minute why I think so. But from a strategic point of view at Siemens, we really try to get away from a volume strategy. That means from filing as many patents as possible to filing the best ones. And uh, quite successful in that respect because we can prove that our patent quality, however you measure it, since we introduced, introduced this strategic change has indeed increased quite substantially. But regarding the uh, public discussion that is going on, as I mentioned, in particular in Germany, I think uh, it is just the wrong basis what the people are looking at. If you study the, the papers that were published, then uh, the patent quality discussion is mainly driven by looking at the patents that are litigated before the German patent court. And as practitioners know, it's only a very, very maybe single digit percentage of patents that are litigated, be it in an infringement court or be it in a nullity court. And as practitioners even more know that the patents that are litigated are not necessarily the best and the strong ones, strongest ones. The patents that are litigated are the ones that are infringed, and that doesn't mean that they are the best and the strongest one. So already from that perspective, it's just, in my view, statistically not okay to draw conclusions from a very, very small set of patents that is litigated to the whole portfolio. And besides that, as I already mentioned, the, the patents that are litigated are not necessarily the best ones, but everybody knows who's in uh, active in practice that infringed patents are usually very close to prior art. They may are maybe even let's call it trimmed to the infringing uh, good and infringing product. So therefore, it's very natural that for these patents, a lot of state of the art and prior art exists. And therefore, the likelihood that the litigated patents are nullified, partially nullified, is rather high. It's maybe even higher than with, with other patents. So that's the first uh, reason why I think that's a, a, an unfair discussion. And the second one is, as I already tried to mention, that there are many, many other patents, maybe 90, 80% at least of the whole portfolio, that are not litigated. And a lot of them are um, 
respected without further notice, so to speak. And an, an even other set of patents is licensed and voluntarily licensed. And I think it would just be unfair to say that the patents that are not litigated, that are voluntarily licensed, successfully licensed, that are respected without further notice, are bad ones, because they are probably even the really good ones, because they don't have to be litigated. Exactly. Uh, I guess um, uh, as a lot of companies uh, or most companies, they before they launch a product, they do an FTO, um, Freedom to Practice uh, um, uh, Assessment, and then they see, okay, there are patterns of competitors that maybe stand in the way and Do we take the risk to um, infringe these patents because maybe they are easily um, attacked or do we take them serious and then we better not enter this area? And uh, as you said, maybe the litigated patents are not the best ones <laughs> because they may be the, the competitors uh, who are entering this field uh, think that they may Uh, be able to uh, remove these patents in revocation actions and these kinds. Um, you mentioned uh, the different factors uh, broadly, different factors to how to measure patent quality. Um, uh, what uh, Can you tell us what Siemens is looking at? For example, are you looking at the outcome of oppositions, uh, whether the patents survive oppositions or What what are the key, um, let's say, um, performance indicators <laughs> or um, how to measure patent quality in your point, in your point of view? Yeah, we, uh, we decided not to use our internal measures because that could always be biased and we are using an outside uh, firm that assesses patent quality. It's a patent site. I think that's quite yeah. well that we are, uh, let's call it a power user of patent site. <laughs> and the patent site has uh, two measures. The first is uh, the market coverage, meaning the geographical scope of a, a patent or a patent application. And the second one is the citations. And I think all the factors are quite uh, sophisticatedly weighted, etc., etc., so that Overall, we feel uh, patent site measure is quite a reliable one. Of course, it is only uh, a proxy of patent quality that we are fully aware of, and it's just a statistical proxy, but for uh, bigger sets of patents and bigger portfolio of patents, it works quite well in our view. Mm. Okay, and um, you said you are moving away from volume filing to filing less, but better patents what are the limiting factors do you do you use for example do you use the same budget uh, but spend more money let's say on each patent filing or so the people who uh, work on the patent filings have more time and can be more more diligent and more careful or how do you um, approach this problem of um, volume versus quality so maybe two aspects uh, here first of all it's a it's a nice experience if you have worked for a, a competitor of the company that you're working now <laughs> i was in contact of course with my 
predecessor and he always said, yeah, please take care. Siemens has such a big uh, patent portfolio and please uh, avoid that we get into conflicts with each other, etc., etc." And honestly spoken, I never took that really seriously because uh, I was I knew that Siemens had much more, more patent than than ABB, but I was not impressed by the sheer volume of the patents of Siemens. I was rather impressed by specific uh, singular patents that cover important technologies. And the second. Uh, one of uh, another aspect is in, indeed budget constraints. I mean, if you go for a volume strategy, then at some stage your budget is limited and then you're not able to file the patents in all the jurisdictions you need. So you might have uh, many, many patents and patent applications, but you might uh, run into the problem that you have a, a very small uh, geographical coverage. So that's one of the aspects. The other one is that in view of digitalization, software patents, uh, artificial intelligence and all these new fancy technologies that we, we are in, to uh, harvest an invention and to define an invention and to patent it gets more and more complicated. Therefore, our patent professionals, patent attorneys have to spend much more uh, a time in understanding and harvest and in determining uh, what the invention is and how it is drafted, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this naturally makes sure that uh, you focus on quality and not quantity, because you're just running out of time if you try to file everything or file a patent for each and every idea that pops up. So you really have to select and you have to understand the technology, you have to understand the invention, put it into a framework of a business strategy, put it in the framework of a business model, and then make sure that you really cover the unique selling propositions of such a business model by the best possible patent application. And that's, in my view, a natural need to focus on quality. Talking about quality and um, uh, developments in 2022 that everyone is looking at, the UPC, the Unified Patent Court, do you think uh, the UPC that uh, will likely be established uh, within this year um, or opens the doors within the year, do you think that will help patent quality or will it be detrimental to patent quality, the, the new court? Uh, there are some uh, important differences to uh, the previous um, procedures in Germany. For example, we don't have a bifurcated system then anymore. So one court is deciding both on patentability and infringement. Um, and also the fee structure is very different. And there are some, of course, other uh, differences. Um, how do you think these differences play into patent quality or the enforceability of patents? Yeah, first of all, I think the, the big advantage of the UPC is to have or to achieve a, a harmonized case law in terms of patentability and infringement all over Europe. And that should, in my view, certainly increase the quality of the patents or at least the, the quality of the case law. And I would also expect that uh, if you go for a, a uniform patent that at 
I mean, the, the investment is not such so high if you compare what coverage you get, but still uh, it's uh, four times, let's to simplify, four times the European patent application, at least for the annuities. And so the investment is considerable and I hope that uh, applicants will seriously consider whether to go for a uh, uh, European patent a uniform European patent or not, and that should also increase, in my view, the quality of the patent applications. Mm. And do you think the quality of the decisions will, uh, of the court will be better than the, the decisions in litigation before this reform? Or what do you expect? Like, uh, for example, some of the important judges from the different countries are now probably moving to the UPC and serve the UPC instead of the national infringement courts. Um, will that uh, be important? Um, or how do you think that the quality of the decisions will evolve? Yeah, I, I expect uh, qualitatively high uh, decisions because as you just mentioned, let's call it the best uh, judges are <laughs> hopefully the best judges are applying for the U to become a UPC judge and therefore we can hope that the decisions will be uh, very good decisions um whether they are better i i don't know yet but i expect that they in europe they should be much more harmonized than what they are today I'm asking because the decisions in Germany are quite of, of quite a high quality or, and um, it's um, no wonder that uh, most of the litigation in Europe happens in Germany. Uh, also for that reason, another reason being uh, it's not so expensive compared to other countries. Um, right. um, and these a lot of these judges are now moving to the UPC, so it could be that uh, and probably that the judges in Germany are now um, looking forward to also having uh, the decision over the patentability. I think a lot of the judges are looking forward to that. Uh, what is what is your opinion? <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I mean, I would say the UPC proceedings also have some aspects, at least from bifurcation but uh, it's not as, what shall I say, as mandatory or explicit as in, in Germany. I'm personally a, a confessing non-fan of the bifurcation because I, th I personally think that the both uh, proceedings belong together. And as we have seen in the, the discussion about the uh, the, the new German Patent Act uh, in, in, in last year, this was the main obstacle, this uh, injunction gap and uh, in a non-bifurcated uh, system such an injunction gap doesn't exist and yeah. therefore uh, I'm really in favor of the UPC proceedings. Yes. Let's talk about uh, abuse of the of the system or possible abuse of the system. There, in the recent years, or maybe we can even say decade, <laughs> there has been in something that has been evolving the non-practicing entities, the so-called non-practicing entities that are holding patents without actually having done the research to that led to the patents or not uh, actually um, using the technology in their own company and 
seeking licenses of possible licensors. What is your opinion? Will the UPC uh, encourage uh, patent trolls or, I'm sorry, uh, non-practicing entities? <laughs> <laughs> or uh, will that be um, something that is coming back or be enforced? Or do you think that will be less interesting for non-practicing entity, entities to use the UPC? Yeah, my personal opinion is that the patent trolls, meaning really uh, non-practicing entities that are kind of misusing the system to extort as much money as possible, that might be a definition of a patent troll, um, is still uh, uh, mainly a US phenomenon because there, the cost, the litigation cost, the attorney fees, the triple damages are so high that uh, it's easy to to uh, extort money or, of uh, defendants. And that really, in my view, not happen with uh, new UPC proceedings because the proceedings are not uh, cheap, but they are not extensively expensive in my view. And uh, therefore, I don't expect that the uh, UPC will attract more patent trolls. Maybe in the beginning, there will be some uh, test balloons of some non-practicing entities. But overall, I don't expect that the UPC will further encourage the enforcement of patents by non-practicing entities or patent trolls in, in, in Europe. Okay, but there are also um, non-practicing entities that are, for example, universities or um, research institutes or, for example, IBM or Siemens even, uh, that are developing, researching technology, new technology, and then they are filing for this technology. For example, I know about IBM that they have huge laboratories um, Uh, for researching technology that they are never will be using, but they are um, they also have a quite an interesting licensing policy. Maybe you can tell um, the listeners more about your view of this. Um, I know that you are also um, having very strong research capabilities at Siemens and Sometimes there will be results that that you yourself, Siemens, is not using, but uh, seek uh, to license. Um, what is your your view on on the UPC and uh, in this context? Will um, will it be helpful to find um, licenses for these for these type of companies that are researching new technologies and then looking for a license? I don't think that this is specific to the UPC, but I just would like to make a general remark, which is uh, true for Siemens or IBM or Fraunhofer. I mean, if Siemens invests in technologies and comes to the decision that this technology is out of scope of the current business uh, of Siemens or Fraunhofer that doesn't have let's call it any business at all, or Fraunhofer's business or the university's business is to do basic research, then I mean, it's only fair that these companies, including Siemens, IBM, etc., want to get a return on their investment. And sure. that's 
be achieved by by uh, licensing out this technology or by transferring it, etc. We are doing that uh, at Siemens as well. So we are, as I always call it, a confessing non-practicing entity as well. <laughs> and but we are using this money again specifically. We are using it uh, to. Uh, pre-finance uh, IP protection for other technologies, for other long-term strategic technologies. So the money that we, we get from these licenses is again used to become even more innovative. And I think that's a, a fair approach. Right. And there shouldn't be any um, drawbacks with that because it's just fair and it's since we're an economic company and a, a profit-oriented company i think that's what we have to do for our shareholders i personally don't think that upc will change a lot in that respect uh, because it's just a harmonized uh, proceeding and harmonized case law but in terms of licensing out uh, patents, I don't think it will change too much. Well, I thought maybe um, you get you can more easily um, negotiate license deals that are EU wide uh, as compared to uh, only licenses in certain countries where the patents exist, uh, let's say, or can be easily litigated, let's say Germany or so. Um, um, just um, your your story just reminded me that um, uh, there's of, of course always a legitimate reason to uh, be a non-practicing entity like a, a good one let's say <laughs> uh, and um, I just remember uh, I always I was a lecturer at a university and uh, my story about this topic was always that IBM when they had the mainframe company uh, the mainframe computers uh, like huge uh, um, huge computers um, uh, and they were, came out of date, let's say, uh, and the company nearly um, had a bankruptcy. Um, the boss of IBM at the time uh, thought about all the patents and then found uh, saved IBM because they then developed a licensing strategy and got a lot of revenue from their patents uh, in the when they when they stopped selling mainframe computers. So I think there's always a very good reason to do excellent research and then uh, there must be a good uh, also a good uh, reason to profit from the research that you are doing of course yeah so, exactly yeah exactly so okay um i also briefly wanted to touch uh, on a topic um that has been on the minds of a lot of German IP professionals. I hope I'm not boring other listeners too much, uh, but we had a patent law reform uh, not so long ago and the injunction of patents, so having someone else stop um, selling a certain good uh, has been a little bit um, amended. Uh, so now that an injunctive relief is is excluded on the basis of the particular circumstances of the individual case and the dictates of good faith so it has been um, there has been introduced some wording in the um, uh, injunctive relief uh, paragraph um, that uh, now allows um, defendants um, to defend themselves so they don't have to stop selling certain goods or offering certain goods. What What is your uh, point of view or your, your ideas about this uh, change in patent law in Germany? 
Yeah, actually, I've been in the discussion and following the discussion very closely as well. Honestly spoken, I'm not really happy about the changes because of two reasons. But on the other hand, and I will mention them in a minute, but on the other hand, it's amazing that if you talk to um, Supreme Court judges, they say, oh, there, there won't be any change at all. We will, do our, <laughs> we will do our case law anyway. So, I mean, that creates, in my view, it creates some tension because the legislator obviously wanted to, to have some change and therefore they changed the law. And the judges say, oh, no, come on, there won't be any big <laughs> change. So it may be interesting how it comes out. But uh, if you read the, the change to uh, paragraph 139, what immediately um, strikes my eye is that if you compare that, for example, with the uh, ruling in the UPC agreement or in the French uh, patent law or in the UK patent law, there is one big difference and the German um, connecting factor or connecting point for this disproportionality consideration is already the claim in, in German in Anspruchnahme and in uh, France, UK and at the UPC it's the enforcement. So there it's clearly written that the court may issue an injunction. And in the new paragraph 139, it's already the claim, which can, in my view, only mean that already, I'm exaggerating now a little bit, but already sending a warning letter to a company could create um, unfair disproportionate proportionality and would be forbidden. And with that, I think, I personally think the legislator has just gone too far because in one of the drafts, the connecting point was also with the enforcement by the court, which in my view would have been the correct connecting uh, point for these disproportionality considerations. And the second one, the second reason why I'm not so happy with is that uh, disproportionality considerations are even possible for third parties. And as a patent owner, you're just not in a position to oversee the whole value chain, whether in some part of the value chain, there might be a small company that has to close down because it's not able to deliver any uh, or supply any goods anymore. And I think that also goes uh, too far. But as we learn from the uh, Supreme Court judge, there won't be any change. <laughs> I doubt, or I, let's say maybe they are right in terms of uh, case law and uh, decisions that come up to the uh, German uh, Bundesgerichtshof. But in my view, the big problem is that this, the signal that you send with this change, because the, already the claim, meaning the Inanspruchnahme, uh, has to be proportional, then this will used or can be used as an argument in licensing negotiations. And with uh, this change, you just discourage 
respecting patents and you dis just discourage um, honest uh, licensees because there is not a, no reason at all why you should respect the patent because at the end you're only obliged to pay uh, a license fee and why should you respect the patent if you have the chance that you can claim disproportionality or something like that so i yeah. think at the end in my personal view the wording is not very good and from my perspective it weakens the german patent law too much i agree with you 100 <laughs> percent thank <laughs> you so much <laughs> Um, and um, I have a provocative question that maybe um, uh, would be interesting for you also to answer. Um, now that we are moving to the UPC and um, I expect a lot litigation moving from national courts to the UPC and uh, especially the um, second tier and third tier companies in the automotive industry might be using the UPC um, because of this a little bit harder wording, um, how relevant will be the German courts in the future when 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 uh, when deciding on patent infringement? If the patentees, uh, the the patent owners, have a much better paragraphs to work on uh, in the UP, at the UPC? Yeah, I honestly I have no feeling. But uh, let's say before the patent reform, I would have expected a quite substantial number of patents to be opted out because uh, patent owners wanted to stay within the known uh, proceedings and the quick and strong patent proceedings in Germany. Now with the weakening, you might be right that. Uh, less opt-outs will happen and that maybe some of the patent owners will be happy to go to the UPC or even prefer to go to, to the UPC. I have no feeling at the moment. I think we, we, we have to see how it develops. Yes, let's see. It will be very interesting to see, uh, especially which, which fields of technology, which companies are using the UPC most and which ones are not. Uh, I'm very interesting, uh, interested in uh, the developments. <laughs> um, so I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned uh, in the beginning, um, in uh, the artificial intelligence generated um, inventions. Uh, if an artificial intelligence is generating an invention, um, there are all these DABUS uh, procedures all over the world. Can the AI be inventor most of the countries decide most of the legislations decided that it's not uh, possible uh, for an ai to become an inventor except i think austria and uh, australia and uh, south africa at the moment um and on another aspect would be um who should own the uh, who should own the inventions generated by ai should that be the person who's pressing the button or should that be who, who should be the owner of the <laughs> of these inventions? Uh, you, I think you have a very clear opinion about this, and that would be very interesting for our listeners. <laughs> yes, indeed, I do, and I'm happy to share that with you. I think uh, to start with, 
I would say it is a fact that at some stage we will have such artificially intelligent created inventions because we already see artific artificially intelligent uh, created um, pictures, music, uh, articles, books, film, designs, etc. And in my view, it will only be a, a question of time when we see the first really AI-created inventions. Just to share some information from Siemens, uh, as regards the electronic design of uh, printed copper boards, I mean the electronic circuits, so to speak, that's in at Siemens mainly done by an artificial intelligence system. And I could very well imagine, for example, if uh, in such a system a new uh, low-pass filter or high-pass filter or whatever, and then another um, electronic topology is created by such an AI system that is even that is new and inventive then uh, we would have exactly an uh, AI-created invention. And then we are uh, confronted with the problem that uh, who should be named as inventor? I mean, as long as human beings are kind of the trigger or the involved in, in creating such an invention. I don't think that we, we really have a problem here. But if the creativity, the, the creative act that is needed for being an inventor is really done by an AI system, then we have a problem because it would be not uh, fair and not truthful to name somebody who just pressed the button or uh, use the computer, etc., because he or she not really creatively contributed to the invention. And there in, therefore, I'm proposing for cases where it's not possible to determine who, which human being creatively contributed to in, an invention to allocate, attribute the inventive inventor rights to the company that used that because that would be much better than attributing it to a anonymous uh, AI system that cannot have any rights, that has no duties, that cannot assign anything, etc. but to attribute it to the company. And by the way, uh, in Germany, we already had such a system in the 30s, I think. Um, there was the concept of Betriebserfindung, company invention, exactly for this case where it was not where uh, it was not able to determine who creatively contributed to the invention, and that could be, in my view, a way to resolve the problem. And I also feel it's the much better way than uh, what the DARPUS um, proceedings tried, because. Uh, as I mentioned, a AI system cannot have, have any rights, has no duties, etc. Therefore, this system shouldn't uh, get any inventor rights. And on the other hand, to give inventor rights to uh, a person that not creatively contributed to an invention would even be much more unfair because then this person would be remunerated uh, for an invention that he or she didn't even do. 
And uh, if I may uh, say a few words about the Darbus applications, I mean, it's great that uh, at least somebody tried something <laughs> with these applications and kind of fired the whole discussion. But honestly spoken, I think the it was a nice try, but if, in my view, it's the wrong approach. Because if you read the two applications, the food container and this... Um, let's call it blinking light or whatever it is, uh, carefully, then for me, I never understood why this should be an AI-created invention. It could very well be a human-created invention, and there is no indication whatsoever that this invention could only have been created by an AI system. So therefore, in my view, the uh, patent offices have no uh, chance then to reject it because there is no no way to, to see for them that this couldn't be created by a human being. And then if you don't uh, nominate uh, an inventor, then we know that the uh, legal consequence is a, is a rejection. So I would say European patent office uh, has no, didn't have any other chance than to reject it. What I could rather imagine for the case that I uh, tried to describe where the creativity is really carried out by an AI self-learning AI system that the applicant files an affidavit stating I'm sorry, I cannot uh, determine a natural person as inventor. Therefore, I nominate myself as a company as being the proxy for the inventor for this uh, for this for this invention. And therefore, I mean, there doesn't need to be an assignment anymore because the company already owns it, and that would be much much easier than to allocate uh, inventor rights to a system or to a uh, non-creative human being and then try to tr transfer it to the company, which doesn't work if the rights are allocated to a system because there's no way to do an assignment. And if it is with the non-creative wrong person, I think that's unfair as well. Right, especially in view of the um, German um, Employers Inventor Act uh, exactly, and the uh, um, remuneration com um, connected to this. So we just uh, talked um, for a long time now. And uh, before we wrap up the interview, I wanted to ask you like a final question. Uh, what do you think, in, in your opinion, are the biggest challenges in the um, field of IP in 2022? Yeah, actually, um, if I think what's the biggest challenge uh, for the future in terms of intellectual property, it's certainly these artificial intelligent uh, created uh, inventions. But maybe the problem is a little bit overstated because uh, there will be certainly a few cases, but I, I, I doubt whether there will be extremely many cases that uh, that have this problem. Then um, another challenge is certainly this patent quality discussion and the enforceability discussion. 
which is uh, very prominent and where we, in my view, should make sure that we are not weakening uh, the, the, the patent system because of uh, uh, wrong assumptions by looking at uh, a kind of wrong set of patents that has not the biggest uh, quality because uh, these conclusions cannot be driven as I tried to mention. But the biggest challenge, honestly spoken, in particular in my position, is um, regarding the fight, the, the economic fight between US and China, this decoupling discussion, because this has uh, clear implications on intellectual property, on where to uh, research, where to develop, what to own, etc., how to set up a IP ownership scheme, how to uh, to set up uh, R&D activities, etc. And that's something I'm currently looking into. I have no uh, final answer yet, but I think for international business, that will be a huge challenge how to make sure that international globalized business is still possible uh, even when the two biggest players start to kind of decouple themselves and uh, to understand what implications that has for intellectual property and intellectual property ownership, in my view, is uh, a really big challenge that we have to tackle in the next years. So, uh, so you just mentioned the decoupling. Um, what does that really mean for uh, Siemens or for Europe um, uh, yeah, the 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 between like China and US, the decoupling. Uh, we are in the middle, right? We are somewhere uh, in the middle. What does it mean for us? Yeah, I think it would be a huge opportunity and huge chance for Europe and for European companies because, as you mentioned, we are in the middle and we might have the opportunity to serve both sides, the US side and the the Chinese side. And therefore, I really hope that um, in the political discussions, we get away from these do dogmatic discussions about inventorship and injunction and competition, etc., to uh, strengthen the European IP system in a pragmatic way to being able to profit of this opportunity and of this chance because at the end i think in order to not to get uh, between these two fronts the chinese and the us fronts we need to strengthen the european technological sovereignty and that uh, could be with done with a strong and with an open-minded ip system uh, where we are open for, for example, artificial intelligence uh, inventions, where we have a European software registered to register our copyrights, etc., etc. But uh, I'm really sorry that sometimes I feel the politicians love, rather love dogmatic discussions than pragmatic discussions that would help industry and economy. Unfortunately enough, but you are president of the VPP. Maybe you can uh, 
you can utilize this function uh, toward the politicians or with to get in discussion with the politicians. I, okay, I but <laughs> this was a really, really fun interview for me, and we covered a really broad range of topics. Uh, I'm very grateful that you came on to our show. And uh, yes, thank you very much for, for being here. You're welcome. It was my pleasure and have a nice weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.